Well, okay, you can go ahead and uh, make your way back to your seat. <clears throat> Great having new ministry partners join with us. Welcome to all of you. Uh, if if you're new here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's great to see you. Hey, if you're a prayer warrior type person, would you pray for two things? Pray for some sunshine. It would be a blessing. And pray for uh, health. How many of you know somebody who's been sick? I mean, I heard uh, several weeks ago, somebody said that like 500 kids at the high school were sick, homesick, just, uh, which is like one in five, I think. But uh, So if you pray for those things, uh, that would be a blessing to a lot of people. I also want to let you know we have uh, several baptisms later on in our time together this morning, so you want to make sure you're here for that to celebrate with these who are taking that step. And that means also that I need to talk faster than I usually do. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12. Today we resume our journey together through the New Testament book of Romans, and that's going to take us through the end of June. Yes, we are actually going to finish a book study. We're going to finish the book of Romans in June. No, we will not have mined all the riches that Romans contains. I don't know if that's even possible. But uh, since we've been away from Romans for a few weeks, I'd like to refresh our memories a little bit. The first 11 chapters, penned by who? Paul the Apostle, really are a treatise on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God's plan to redeem and save a people for himself, to be his eternal family together through the work of his son. And so those first 11 chapters of Romans lay out in detail all that, G all that God has done through Jesus, life, death, resurrection, and ascension back up into heaven. He justifies guilty sinners through faith, amen? Guilty sinners like me, like you, through the gospel, God judged his son, Jesus, in our place, which is amazing to even think about. He gives us now a righteous standing before him, brings us into his family, gives us the Holy Spirit as our empower, our guide in life, provides a new hope of a glorious future. That and a hundred other things are part of the good news that we get to participate in. So this truly is good news for all of mankind. It's wonderful news. It's fantastic news. God is so good to do that for us. Amen? He is so good. And Paul calls this the mercies of God, which means that through Christ's finished work, believers receive not what we deserve, but what Jesus deserves. And sometimes we think, well, I just want what I deserve. And I'm thinking, no, you actually don't really want what you deserve. But to get what Jesus deserves because of his righteous life credited to us, man, that's good news. And that's the first 11 chapters of Romans. Then with the start of chapter 12, he shifts. He shifts the focus from God's mercies to our response. And as we said, this is the gospel pattern that's found all throughout the New Testament. It's how many of Paul's letters are structured, right? First, God initiates, then we respond. God's work for us, then our work in response. First, what God has done, then what we do in response to that. So theology first, then practice. Do you understand this? This is the pattern we find all throughout the epistles in the New Testament. So let me remind us of what our response should be to all of God's mercies to us, all of God's merciful activity towards his people. The first two verses of Romans 12, remember these? 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by or in view of the mercies of God, here's the response now, to present your bodies as a living, what? Sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship and do not be conformed to this world. Don't let this world press you into its mold. But be transformed by the what? The renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what is the only reasonable response for someone who's received the mercies of God? Since God offered his son for us, we in response offer our whole selves back to God in worship. Amen? And four weeks ago, four weeks ago, nearly 400 of you, 400 of you indicated that you were being moved to do this, hopefully by the Holy Spirit, to dedicate yourself completely to God as a living sacrifice, totally surrendering your life to God. You got to know that as a pastor and as a team of pastors, that does our hearts so much good to know that so many of you have offered yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. That's wonderful. And remember the little rock? The little rock of rededication? You still have that? Or the stone of surrender? And uh, many of you have told me that just having that in your presence has been a reminder to you that you belong to God. Others of you put it in a place that could be seen by other people, and I, I understand it's opened up some spiritual conversations. Hey, what's that rock about that you keep on your desk? Oh, well, let me tell you about that. I love that. That is so cool. But listen, now here's a question that some people have asked since making that commitment, okay? Since offering their life to God as a living sacrifice. And the question goes like this, what now? <laughs> What's the next step? Should I be doing something different now that I've offered myself to God as a living sacrifice? And it's a, it's a good question. I've given some different responses to those people based on their individual situation that they shared with me. But since we're all together now... How about if we just let Paul the Apostle instruct us on what to focus on next once we've dedicated ourselves to God? I mean, we've seen in Romans that he's been very meticulous, very careful in how he's pieced his argument together in sharing the good news with us. I've got to believe there's a rhyme and reason for what he says immediately following Romans 12, 1 and 2, don't you? So let's let Paul guide us into these next steps on this journey of being a living sacrifice. And I'd like to read... Uh, the next several verses for us. So listen as I read. Verse 3 of Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, how many of us is that? That's all of us. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Let me read it in a different translation. I think it uh, sheds even more light on this. This is from the NLT. Because of the privilege and authority that God has given me, Paul writes, I give each of you this warning, do not think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. So this is very interesting to me. Do you see where Paul goes next after calling us to surrender our whole lives to God? Where does he go? He goes to our thinking, doesn't he? To how we think. 
And for the next several chapters, we're going to see Paul calling us to rethink our thinking about a variety of things. And this is a unique ability that human beings have, that God has given us, to actually think about how we think. Animals don't do that. Insects don't do that. But we as humans, we can take off those lenses, set them on the table, and examine how we see the world, how we perceive things around us. We can rethink our thinking. From what I can tell, what Paul's really doing here is he's elaborating on that theme that he talked about in verse 2 of renewing our minds. Remember he said that? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing your minds. He's taking that theme now and he's carrying it forward into these next several verses. He's going to explain to us how fully surrendered followers of Jesus think about things. I think it was Zig Ziglar who said, too many Christians are guilty of stinking thinking. (laughs) I hope that's not true. But certainly all of us need to cooperate with God's Holy Spirit to continually renew our minds so that we come to think more and more like God thinks. We come to to have the mind of Christ, as it says. So interesting, what part of our thinking does Paul address first? Does he talk about how we think about life, how we think about the world, how we think about money, how we think about the future, relationships? Where does he go first? How we think about ourselves. Right? That's interesting. Our self-image, our self-concept, our, our self-perception. Why does he start there? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because that's what his original readers needed to hear, that, that he was writing to the Romans, right? Maybe he got wind that too many of those Roman believers were thinking too highly about themselves, and he wanted to correct that, and certainly that's likely. Maybe he starts here because our self-image is somehow foundational to the other areas he's going to talk about. And we've got to first see ourselves clearly before we can learn how to relate to others in a healthy manner, and that's probably true. Maybe John Piper was right when he said that Paul starts here with our self-concept, not because that's the most important area, but because that's the most dangerous area. Because as human beings, we're very prone to having wrong thoughts about ourselves, having an inaccurate self-image and That has the potential to wreck a lot of things in our lives. Whatever his reasons, this is where Paul goes first. You could summarize his instruction here like this. Form an accurate perception of yourself. He says, think about yourself with sober judgment, with sober thinking. In other words, let the Holy Spirit renew your thinking about you so that it comes more into line with how God thinks about you and how God thinks about me. And we all know that we walk around in life with a self-concept, right? A picture in our minds of, of who we are. The truth is it's gotten formed and shaped by many, many things through the years. Probably early on it was by our parents, what our parents said to us, what our parents thought about us, and then our teachers, perhaps, important adults in our lives early on, and then it got to where what our peers thought mattered, right? In middle school, oh my gracious, we're all still recovering from middle school, probably. You know, what, what, what they thought of us, our personality, our physical features, our, our body image, and all of that entered into our self-concept, how good we were at school, right, in academics or sports or the arts, all that played into it. 
And all of these factors and others contributed to the forming of this mental image we have in our minds of ourselves and our perceived worth and value in this world. We carry this around in our heads, don't we? And there's a lot that could be said about self-concept or self-image from a variety of, of uh, fields of expertise, a variety of angles. But let's just note here there's two basic human tendencies or general tendencies that human beings have when it comes to how we see ourselves. Both are alluded to in these verses. We can think too highly of ourselves or we can think too lowly of ourselves. When someone thinks too highly of themselves, we call that pride or arrogance. When someone thinks too lowly about themselves, we might think that's humility, but it's actually false humility. Humility is something else. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, and even false humility is rooted in pride. But here's the rub on both of these, too high, too low. I think what Paul's getting at here is our natural tendency as humans to assess ourselves in comparison to other people, right? I get this from the fact that, that he's talking about self-concept and then he immediately starts talking about the other people in the church and their gifts and their abilities and so forth. So I believe this is a natural tendency to base our self-worth on how we measure up to other people. We seek validation through comparison, favorable comparison, right? Would you agree that's a pretty common and normal things for people to do? I didn't say it was healthy. I said it was normal and common to do this. And we're all well-versed in this, I think. We all know we have this rating scale in our minds, right? So, for example, we walk into a room full of people, and almost instinctively, we locate ourselves on some imaginary rating scale, a scale of desirability, comparing ourselves with other people in the room, either favorably or unfavorably. We either feel good about ourselves or not so good about ourselves by that standard of comparison, right? So if I perceive myself to be better looking than this fella or... She has it more together than her, or dress more stylishly, earn more income. I feel pretty good about myself, right? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I drive a nicer car, live in a nicer part of town, have better kids, <laughs> have a higher IQ, or a more engaging personality, or more education, or have more Facebook friends or Twitter followers. Well, then I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm feeling pretty good about who I am. But if I don't, measure up to that standard of comparison, then, well, it kind of stinks to be me, right? We all know how this works, and Paul is telling us it's a trap. It's the comparison trap, because in one room with one group of people, you can feel pretty good about yourself in comparison with others, and you walk into the next room, and you're like, I feel like scum here, right? It's fickle. It's an artificial standard. Comparison is a two-edged sword live or die by it. I think Paul here is seeking to help us see that, that other people are the wrong standard by which to assess ourselves, reevaluate our worth. But thankfully, this is not a problem in the church, right? Just out there, they have that problem out there, but, but, but not here, right? I mean, in, among Christians, we don't fall into the comparison trap, or do we? i got to tell you, pastors are notorious for comparing themselves with other pastors, you know. 
well, I think I'm a better preacher than he is, you know. Even church members can fall into this, right? Why don't, why don't they appreciate me? How come this other person always get recognized and gets recognized and not me? Don't, don't, they, don't they know what I bring to the table around here? Ungodly comparison with other people is a trap. And it's one that Paul wants to help us get free from through repentance. And the word repentance in the New Testament simply means a change of mind. It means rethinking our thinking, right? That's the pathway here. So let's ask, what is renewed thinking? What is the renewal of our minds when it comes to how I view myself? Paul says, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, sober judgment, assess yourself accurately based on what God has given you, not based on how you compare or measure up to somebody else or what they have. So here's the real truth about the comparison trap. This is another verse of scripture, okay? Let's, let me read this. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some, some others, who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves, when they compare themselves with themselves, with each other, it's saying, they are what? Not wise. Not wise. It is just foolish to base your self-concept, your self-image, your worth, your value on how you think you compare with somebody else. It's fickle. It'll change from day to day, hour to hour, room to room. So what should we be basing our self-image on? Verse 3 says that God has assigned to each one of us a measure of faith. That's an interesting term. Verse 6 says that God has given each of us a unique grace, a unique gifting. So simply put, to make an accurate evaluation of yourself, to think rightly about you, requires cultivating, listen, contentment with what God has given you. Amen. Contentment with how God has made you, with how God has wired you, with how God has put you together. And we know that Psalm says that God knit us together in our mother's womb, right? And he had a purpose for giving us the, the genes, the chromosomes, the DNA that he gave us that makes us who we are. And, and Paul is saying, look, be content with the design that the sovereign God made you according to. Contentment. And so I need to ask, what will it be for you, comparison or contentment? Because those two are mutually exclusive. <laughs> if you're chronically comparing yourself with other people, you're not going to be content. But if you are content with how the sovereign God has put you together, you're not going to feel the need to compare yourself with others. Does this make sense? Comparison or contentment? It says you have been given a unique measure of faith which I take here to mean just the right amount of faith for you to be able to believe that God has put you together just right. Just right. It's believing in your heart that you are a unique creation of God made in His image, that you possess the unique combination of physical features and physical traits and personality and gifts and other features that the sovereign God who made you felt was best for you to accomplish the purpose and mission that He has for your life. 
And you can be content with that because you have faith in the sovereign God. And you know what we're really talking about here? We're talking about humility. Being humble. Being humble means having an accurate perception of yourself. Seeing yourself clearly. It's, humility comes from seeing yourself like God sees you. It's being content with how God put you together. Listen, being humble is not walking around with your head down saying, I'm not worthy. Don't look at me. Don't notice me. I got nothing to offer. I'm a worm. I'm knee high to a grasshopper. That's not humility. That's weird. That's just weird. (laughs) Humility, biblical, true humility, is driving your value and your validation from faith in God's sovereignty instead of what other people think of you or how you compare with other people. Humility has a different source of validation. We all need validation. We all need to feel validated, but it's where you go to get it, where you go to get it. And you know what else? Humility is being content not only with how God put you together, but with how God put other people together too and their gifts and their abilities believing that he had a purpose in making them, forming them the way that he made them, even though they're different from you. I think we all know inherently what Paul says in verses 4 and 5, that we're different here in this body of believers. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, right? So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, so now he, he goes to talking about this community of believers, this family of Jesus followers that, that God has adopted us into by faith. He's talking about the church. And we all know that in the church, we are not all the same. And we should be encouraged by that. I mean, I, if, if, if everybody in the church was just like me, it'd be a nightmare. You know, it would not be a healthy church. We need diversity and these, the differences that exist in the family of God, we're actually designed intentionally by God himself, right? For the overall benefit of the church. Evidently, he wanted to create a church community, a spiritual family where everybody's not the same, where differences exist. Even in this room, there are different levels of spiritual maturity. Some have walked with God for 40 years. Others are new into the faith. There's a variety of of levels of faith here. There's different personalities and giftings and functions. And of course, there's diversity in age and gender And race, why did God choose to do it like that? Well, it seems to me that he did this so that there would be a climate of humility and mutual respect and the realization that we need each other. We're interdependent. And that leads to health and strength in the body of believers. We don't need to be afraid of the differences among us. We need diversity in order to be healthy and strong. Think about a sports team. We know the strongest sports teams are not those teams where every member is a carbon copy of each other, where every member is identical, right? No, no. A good general manager will pull together a diverse group of players with different talents and skill sets that can complement each other with with their differing abilities, where strengths can offset weaknesses and where each person's unique contribution can be maximized in a specific role. Or for an even better analogy, look at the metaphor here that Paul always preferred to use, the metaphor of what? The body, the human body. And again and again and again, we see Paul saying the church 
is like a human body in many ways. And we've done a lot of teaching on this through the years here, so I'm not going to go in depth to, into it now. But his point is clear, I think. Many different members are in the church, and they possess a, a, a wide diversity of gifts and abilities. And all of those functions are necessary for a healthy body. So your liver does not sit there in your body and say, why do I have to be a liver? I mean, nobody likes liver, right? Nobody respects me. Why can't I be a brain that everybody respects and looks up to? Plus, nobody sees me. Why can't I be something that everybody can see, like a nose? Does your liver envy your brain or your nose? It's kind of ridiculous to think about, right? No, your liver is content being a liver and doing what livers do, whatever that is. That's, your liver knows that's how it contributes to the overall health of the entire body. Does your eyeball go around bragging and saying, I'm so glad that I'm not like that gallbladder down there? It's invisible. I mean, people even have their gallbladders removed, and sometimes there's no side effects of that. I'm much superior to that dispensable little organ. It's ridiculous, right? The liver, the eye, the nose, the gallbladder, they don't think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. They don't think more lowly of themselves than they ought to think. No, they think with sober judgment, if it can be said that a liver thinks. They think accurately about themselves. They know what they were designed to do. They're content with that. They know what their unique function in the body is, and they perform it believing that the overall health of the body will be impacted and will flourish and thrive. Individually, it says, we are members one of another. We belong to each other. We need each other. We're interconnected, he's saying, interdependent. That's the idea. And so what he's really talking about here is a second area of renewed thinking or a second area of mind renewal. Yes, renewed thinking about ourselves, but now renewed thinking about each other, each other. And so he calls us to think of ourselves not as standalone, independent individuals with no real attachments, but he calls us to think of ourselves as vital members of an organic community, a living, breathing thing that God has created, an organism that's comprised of many different organs and limbs and muscles and systems that all work together for the health and growth, and I would add the reproduction of the body. And so this is communal thinking rather than individualistic thinking, and don't you think that's a mind shift for a lot of people? Because our culture is very individualistic, right? And so the call here is to think not just about me, but about we. That, as, that me is part of we. <laughs> Connected. And this is a mind shift for a lot of people. And someone might say, well now, hold on just a second. I thought the church exists to serve me. I thought the church exists to serve me, to serve my family. And I think Paul would say, well, no. You need to rethink your thinking, actually. You actually exist to serve the body of Christ, to offer your giftings, to offer who you are to the other members of the body, to fulfill your designated function so that it'll be a healthy, growing, reproducing body of believers. 
I wonder, would that kind of thinking represent a mind shift for you? So look at how Paul urges us to embrace this mindset. Verse 6, talking about the body now. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us, what does it say? Use them. (laughs) We have different gifts in the body, use them. If prophecy, use it in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving to the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes or gives. Did you know there's a spiritual gift of giving? In generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So his challenge to each of us is pretty clear, isn't it? Offer your giftings to bless and build up the body of Christ. Take that spiritual gift that you've been given off the shelf, blow the dust off of it, unwrap it, pull it out, and use it to bless other people. That's the design of the one who is forming the body. So I think there are several ideas that are inherent right here in this instruction. I'm going to say some things, and if you agree with these things, would you just say amen? Okay. Thank you. I haven't said anything yet. You do have something to offer the rest of us. That gift came to you via the grace of God. If you don't offer it to us, we'll be hurting. If you don't offer it to us, your thinking is off. The intensity is going down a little bit. (laughs) What you have to offer is different than what others have to offer, but that's okay. Yeah, they have their own giftings, right? There are a variety of giftings. They're all needed in the body of Christ. The body needs everybody all in. Amen. Amen. How many gifts are listed here in this passage in Romans 12? Did you count them up? Seven. There's seven gifts. Now, I don't believe that's an exhaustive list. I believe there are more than seven spiritual gifts. Other passages list other gifts. But a sampling, I think, is what he's giving us here. Now, step back for a minute and just think about Romans 12 so far and the beauty of the progress of the thinking here. Remember back to those first two verses, offer yourselves a living sacrifice, remember that? So in verses 1 and 2, the recipients of the mercies of God are called to offer themselves to God as a living sacrifice Now, here in verses 3 through 8, believers are called to offer themselves to each other, right? In verses 1 and 2, the point is worship, worship of God. Now, in verses 3 through 8, the point is humble service to others. In verses 1 and 2, the focus is vertical. In these verses, the focus is horizontal. So worship will overflow into service. Spiritual worship of God will prompt practical ministry to others. It has to. It's an outlet. So he says, we each have gifts that differ. Verse 6, that word gifts, do you know what the original Greek word is? Charismata. Say that. Charismata. Just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Charismata. And that speaks of abilities, abilities empowered by the Holy Spirit... 
that you've been given that were meant to serve and bless and uplift and build up the rest of the body of believers. The root of charismata, charismata is charis, which is grace. It's the word for grace. So these gifts are sometimes referred to as grace gifts from God. Spiritual gifts. What are they? Well, there's other places in the New Testament that give more detail. Let me mention a few things. These gifts, these grace gifts, spiritual gifts, are distributed to to each and every believer in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit at the moment the Spirit enters their lives. Every believer has at least one gift. Some have more than one, but every believer the Bible teaches has at least one gift. So would you look at your neighbor right now and say, you're a gifted person. Just tell them that. You're a gifted person. See him light up? It's like, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> you are. You're a gifted person. Now, now, no one believer possesses all the gifts. I think probably only Jesus himself had all of the gifts. But everybody has at least one gift. Some have more than one. Some gifts are more public in nature, more visible. Others are more private, more behind the scenes. But they're all valuable. And somebody could probably make a case that the the invisible private gifts are maybe even more important, like in our bodies, the invisible organs inside us are probably more important, right? They're all valuable. These gifts are given for the purpose of building up or edifying the entire body of believers. They're not given for the purpose of exalting ourselves. That was the problem in, in the city of Corinth. People with the more visible public gifts were saying, look at me, I'm pretty awesome, aren't I? And they were... They were um, exalting themselves. The Bible also tells us that we're unwise to look down on other people who have different gifts than we have. Because that's comparing and that's foolish, right? So, getting real practical here. I realize it's been quite a while since we've offered our spiritual gifts workshop here in our church. And we've offered it several times. It's been very helpful to people in our church. And so, if you're a person who maybe hasn't had much teaching in your life on spiritual gifts, or maybe you have had some teaching on it, but you're still not sure what your own gifts are, or maybe you know what your giftings are, you're just not sure how and where to use them in the church, struggled to fit in, I want to urge you to attend this workshop. So we've put this together. It's, t- it's presented by Alan Budd, so you know it's going to be fun and entertaining, right? And it's this Thursday night at 7 o'clock, and it's free. And it's for anybody who just wants to understand more about spiritual gifts, the biblical teaching on this, and, and discover your gifts and learn how to, to develop them and hone them more and more, and then use them, like Paul tells us here, use them in the body of believers, in, in the church. And so... Um, So here's what we're going to do. On this little connection card, this little tear-off connection card, you know there's lots on it, and on the back side it says, I am interested in, and on the bottom, the last thing in bold face, it says spiritual gifts workshop. See that? And so, because we would like to know how many are coming, if it's going to be four people, or 40 people, or 400 people, or 4,000 people. So um, I would urge you to come. I know you'll be blessed by it and benefit from it, and if if you would like to plan on attending that Thursday night, 7 to 9, this Thursday night, just check that box, and then that will give us an idea of how many chairs to set up, okay? So 
I hope you'll check that out. Did I do okay on that? Alan? Decent? Okay. All right. So I'm going to say again that we don't believe that the seven gifts mentioned here in Romans 12 represent an exhaustive list. Other passages enumerate other gifts. Uh, My own belief is that there are many, 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 many spiritual gifts and many combinations of them. The point here is not to list them all out. The point here is that whatever gift you have, what? Use it. Use your gift. Use it for for its intended purpose. Use it for its intended function in the body of Christ so that the the body can flourish and grow and thrive and reproduce. To be real practical here, I've got a second resource that I want to make available to you on this topic, also at no charge. Because one thing we've come to realize is that one great environment where somebody can discover their gifts and where, where it can be affirmed and even develop those giftings is in a small group. It's in a small group. Yeah, there's people that Hopefully you're connected in a small group and you're kind of walking through life together and enjoying that. And what we've come to understand is the small group is a place where others can affirm your giftings, right? They, they, they can say, well, yeah, we see that in you. We see that in you. We want to affirm that. Or, uh, no, I don't really think that's your gifting. You know, maybe try something else. Uh, that. It's, it's great to be in an environment where you can have that kind of feedback from people. And I think Pastor Jay and, and Janet have put together just a dynamite tool for helping people better understand how their giftings can be affirmed and used in small groups. And I want to make that available to you today as well. It's a, a little, what, one, two-page um, document that says, Using Spiritual Gifts in Small Groups. And it's got 20 or 25 gifts on here and how those can be uh, can show up in the, in the life of a small group, how those might be used in the life of a small group. So we've got a stack of these on the welcome counter, and I, I encourage you, if you're in a group, or if you're a group leader, or you're heading towards becoming part of a small group, pick up one of these and read through it. I know you'll be encouraged and challenged by it, okay? And those of, those of our small groups that are tracking with our weekend sermon, they're going to be diving into this very topic more deeply this week when we come together in our groups. All right, two more things I want to say, and then I'll be done. Having everybody in the game, everyone who calls New Life their church home, having all of you in the game is always important in every season, but it's especially critical when we're in a season where we're preparing to send out a portion of our congregation to open up a campus in another part of our city. And that's what's happening this year. I talked earlier about a healthy body reproducing itself. And we've been blessed to do that many times in our 34 years here. It's like, well, it's like having a baby. Which is wonderful, right? Painful, I'm told, but wonderful to bring new life into the world, have babies. We have lots of babies around here. So this is a church having a baby birthing a new congregation. Many of you know that 2019 is a year of pregnancy and birth for this church. We're preparing to give birth to a new congregation out in the East East Broad Street corridor of Blacklick and Pataskala and Reynoldsburg out in that area, possibly as early as this fall. 
you've been through our New Life class, you know our strategy around here is reach, train, send, right? Reach people with the gospel, train them deeper in the gospel, send them out for the gospel. And this is a send year. This is a send year for New Life Church. Among other things, what that means is this. We need all hands on deck, both here and there. If we're going to do this in a way that we stay healthy, we need everybody in the game. We need everybody serving somewhere. I mean, how many of you know that having an organ or a limb that's not functioning is a handicap to a body, right? Some of you know that personally from your own experience. Well, the same is true of the body of Christ. We need everybody functioning in their role for this to be healthy all the way around so that post-birth we're not suffering from postpartum blues because everybody's stepped up into the game. Everybody's serving. You see, in a few months, things are going to begin to look and feel a little different around here. You're going to look down your row and you say, hey, where is so? They're, I don't see them anymore. Well, they're part of our East Campus, so they're worshiping out east now. They're on mission with Jesus out there now, spreading the gospel. It's going to begin to feel a little bit different. And, and a question we all should be asking is, well, then who's going to do what they do here? Maybe you. <laughs> Maybe you'll step into that liver function or whatever, you know, whatever function they were in. See what I'm saying? Everybody in the game. So I, I challenge you, I urge you to step up and offer to serve. Here's the last thing I'll say. Serving in the body, in your area of giftedness, is the best thing. That's the most joyful for you. You know, when a liver's doing what a liver was designed to do, it's a happy liver. When you're doing what you were gifted and designed by God to do, it's, you get the most joy out of that. You flourish, you thrive. It's not as draining and depleting because you're doing what you're created to do. It's also most impactful for other people. And that's great. But listen, we also need some humble servants who are just willing to offer themselves to serve wherever there's a need. Not forever, not till Jesus comes back, for a season. And pastors love this, right? Ministry leaders love this. Hey, pastor, I just, <laughs> I am so grateful for God's mercy to me. I just want to offer myself to the body to serve wherever there's a need. Some of you, the first step is actually what these folks did earlier here is, is becoming ministry partners here at the church, taking our upcoming New Life class, joining in that covenant together. So, buddy, maybe that's your first step, and I urge you towards that. But, but those of you who are ministry partners and you're not serving anywhere I just want, to, want you to know there's a place for you. And so again, on this little connection card, there's a, a box that says, I am interested in serving in a ministry. And there's a line. And I hope some of you today will say, will check that box and say, wherever. Wherever. Wherever needed. And we'll have someone get back in contact with you and explain where, where there's some, some needs right now. Make sense? My question to you is this, um, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Talked with someone after the first hour, said that it was a hurtful church experience years ago. And I've just been on the sidelines ever since. Never recovered, never been healed. And I'm like, you got too much to offer to stay sidelined the remainder of your days. Let's pray for God's, the healing salve of his grace to 
cover your heart? What is it? Is it, is it, is it doubt? Like, well, I did that before and it, it bombed. It didn't go well, you know. And so I'm out. I'm out of the game. Is it fear? Is it doubt? I don't know what it is. But I want to pray for you that God would, would, by his enabling grace, help you to overcome whatever that blockage is, that obstacle is, so that you'll just, out of gratefulness to God's mercy, you offer yourself to the body of believers here. So would you bow your heads? In a few moments, we'll have prayer partners up here. They would love to pray with you. If there's, a, uh, if there's pain, if there's woundedness in your heart, in your life, from a past experience, if there's something holding you back, they would love to pray over you and, and start you on that pathway towards healing and wholeness and fulfillment and flourishing. So Lord, I just lift up now my friends here. Lord, what might this body of believers be like if we were all in the game, all on the team, all serving, all using our gifts, everybody engaged? What a glorious thing that would be. How the mission would be advanced, Lord, here and around our city, and we pray for that. Lord, if there are those who've been wounded and hurt, who, who overcome with fears or are so timid, they feel like, I don't have anything to offer, I don't got nothing, would you prompt them to come and receive prayer in a few moments, Lord, just so that that can be brought into the light and spoken and voiced, and then your freedom begin to, to reign over them. Yes, Lord, Jesus, you are the head of this church. Take us where you want us to go. In Christ's name, amen. 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 amen.